We now come to the part in our service where we open our scriptures, and um, we will be reading from Revelation chapter 8 and 9 this week. Last week we left off with verse 5 of chapter 8. I will pick up at verse 6 and read through the end of chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, please um, look at one of the red Bibles in the pew in front of you. Revelation chapter 8, verse 6. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and a third of the night was without light. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, 
Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murder, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dive into this, I just have to note that it's for years now been a running joke between Melanie and I that somehow she always gets these strange or unusually long scripture readings as we work through things. And this is both of those things. And um, the liturgy schedule gets written. I choose text. I don't write the liturgy schedule. I look at it later. So I'm not out to get you, Melanie. But God might be out to get you in his providence. But <laughs> Let's pray and let's turn to God's word. Father, I give you thanks for your word. I give you thanks that you speak to it through us, to us as your people. pray that you would be with all of us as we sit under the authority of your word. Me as I seek to explain it, even though I am a sinner. For all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, with this sermon, we're going to do something kind of radically different than we normally do in a sermon. And if you're a visitor with us and this is your first time, this will be different, just so you know, than how I normally do it. But here's the deal. I, um, we've been preaching through the book of Revelation, and it has been good, but it is maybe accentuated attention I always feel as a pastor, which is that, oh, and as my wife is reminding me, kids, you're dismissed to worship kids style. <laughs> um, parents, you're welcome to keep your kids with you in the worship if you would like. There's age-appropriate worship kids style worship in the back, and also um, there's nursery care available. But with that said, here's the deal. Here's, here's what's bothering me a little bit. As a pastor, this thing happens where you will preach a sermon and people will come up to you and they will say, that was a great sermon, Pastor. I would have never gotten that from the text. And on the one hand, I appreciate that because A, it means job security for me. <laughs> um, but, but B, like it is true that um, I am gifted and called and trained to study God's word and help people, right? And if, if every sermon I preached were like, oh yeah, well, all of that is obvious, then I guess um, you know, maybe that calls into question why um, I'm doing what I'm doing. But it also worries me because it can feed into this way of thinking about the church and the world where you've got like two classes of Christians, right? You've got like these few trained people who can read the Bible and understand it and explain what it means and then everyone else is kind of helpless. And, um, and that's doubly true in a book like Revelation that is really challenging, right? And so I was prepping the sermon for this 
week and going to dig into all of, there's a lot of crazy symbolism and stuff. But I was really feeling the weight of, like, I don't want to further feed into that sense that people have of, like, I struggle to access God's word. And so I decided that we're going to do something completely different than what we would normally do in a sermon. And so in your bulletin, you'll see this little thing. This is, um, you can take this home with you, but that is a rundown of a version of what is called inductive Bible study, which is a method that you use to read um, and study a text of the Bible. And this is really honestly what I use when I sit down and study the Bible, at least as a starting place. And so what we're going to do this morning, instead of me showing you the end results of that study, is we're just going to, on the screen, this is going to be my notebook, and I'm literally just going to walk through with you, if I was sitting down with this text, like, here's how I would walk through this process of inductive Bible study and how we would apply it. And here's what I'm hoping for us to get out of this after we do this. We're going to do it with this text, right? And look, this method is not some magic, like, a lot of the details of some of the strangest parts of this text we will still, at the end of this process, not have a clear sense of what they're doing. I'll kind of mention how you would pursue that, but, you know, you're not going to sit down for a half hour with Revelation 8 and 9 and get all of the nuances and details of it. But you can come away with it with a sense of here's what it's about and here's how to apply it to my life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just follow this method with the text, and I'm going to kind of show my work up on the screen. Does that make sense to everyone? All right. So let's start. The first step of this method is to investigate. Um, really, before this first step, first of all, you sit down and you pray and you read a text of Scripture before you do any of these things. And it's worth mentioning that you want to read a text of Scripture that kind of forms a natural whole. So like you'll notice, this, it, this tells a kind of story as we go through these six trumpets. And in particular, sometimes that means you ignore the like chapter and verse breaks in your Bible. So like we skipped the chapter break between 8 and 9, because obviously chapter 9 is, as you heard it read, clear clearly a continuation of what was happening in chapter 8. But you read it, and then you start to ask questions. The first questions you ask are the five W's and an H that you learned about in elementary school. Who, what, when, where, why, how. And so first, who? Who's involved in the text? And again, I'm just going to put my whole notebook. I'm going to put what I would write down as I'm going through it. So you've got um, these angels that are blowing trumpets, You've got the people on the earth, and I'm like, okay, it mentions in chapter 9, there's this one point where you've got the sealed and those who are not sealed. Um, you've got these locusts and Abaddon, Apollyon, whatever. You know, there's question marks that appear in my notebooks when I'm, when I, when I'm preparing for sermons a lot of times. I don't know what's up with that, I say. Um, and then you've got these four angels and the horsemen. All right, that's who's acting. Then what? I'm just going to walk through all of these. What's going on? Well, we've got the trumpets being blown. And I noticed as I read through it and thought about it a little, the first four trumpets seem to be about kind of natural disasters and natural destruction. In the, and they all contain these thirds of different things, thirds of the sun and sea and stuff. And then you have this plague of locusts, and then you have these angels and horsemen. Then um, when does it happen, and where does it happen? And the answer on when in this text is it doesn't say. That's actually very important, because as we talked about back in Revelation 1, a lot of people naturally assume that everything in the book of Revelation is in the future for us, but that's not true. There are parts of it that are in the future. There are parts of it that are ways of describing our current time. There's parts of it that are describing the work of Jesus. And so I don't know on a first reading when this stuff is happening. I guess I could say after the seven seals, because if you were reading along and you've been with us the last few weeks in Revelation, 
But even there, like we said, it seems like some of the visions in Revelation are talking about the same thing, so that doesn't necessarily mean that it's happening after that. All right? And then where? I just listed all the places. The heavens and the earth, the bottomless pit, the river Euphrates. And as we're going, you'll notice I'm not digging into, at this point, any of those things. I'm just listing things. But I am sort of, like, mentally checking boxes of, like, okay, like, I'm noticing stuff. Then we get to why and how, the last two of those questions. And here's where you maybe start digging in just a little bit. Um, You can split those out, but you're saying, why are these events happening? How are they taking place? What seems to be the ideas that are together? I noted a few things. First of all, these seem to be divine judgments. That maybe is obvious to some of you, but it's worth just pointing out, like, the reason this stuff seems to be happening is God is bringing judgment on the earth. Um, The end of chapter 9 especially seems to call out the unrepentance of humanity, both as a cause for this judgment and that humanity is still unrepentant after it happens. Um, And then I also notice in terms of how that it is God's angels that are bringing the judgment, which means that these are things that ultimately he is doing in judgment of the world, which is to say this isn't like something Satan does in this passage, but God sends out angels, he gives them trumpets, he sends them out from his throne room, and then in this text, they blow the trumpets and these things happen. Again, you're probably thinking about questions, starting to, you know, to want to dig in, but at this point, we're just noticing things. Then I have some other questions, if you look in that bulletin handbook. First, I always recommend you look for repeated words. So you've got stuff about trumpets and angels and thirds and woes and plagues. Often, you look at those repeated words and you're like, oh yeah, that kind of explains why the text feels a certain way. And certainly there, that explains why you feel kind of the weightiness of it. You look if there's any lists. Maybe there's a list of spiritual gifts or sins. Or in this case, you've got just the list of the trumpets and what happens. Then you look for words that might indicate changes in topic or time. You'll notice that in there. But I actually didn't really notice anything in this text other than just that one trumpet sounds and then the next sounds. But it never says like after these things or something like that in the way that I would call out or meanwhile. And then whether there's any contrasts. So you look for words like but or however. And I do notice there's one where you have this moment with the locusts where it talks about how they're coming on all mankind. But the green things of the earth and those that are sealed seem to be spared and it's only coming on those who are not sealed by the Lamb. And then you look for causes and results. Obviously on some level the result of this text is terrible destruction on the earth. Um, And also that um, one of the results at the end is explicitly spilled out that people don't repent even though this judgment is coming. Alright. So that's the first step. Investigate. And pause here because you might be thinking, Pastor Eric, you haven't told me what to think about the text yet. And that is correct. The reason that I'm trying to walk us through this is to say, if you start with this, you're actually going to have a lot of equipment to start digging into the text. And actually, when I sit down to write a sermon, I usually start somewhere like this. And this is the point where I would kind of add a step, or not, not a full separate step. But at this point then, I would say, okay, do I want to investigate the text further? Do I have time to? And when you're writing a sermon, the answer to that is yes, right? And, um, and so what I would do is I would make a list of all the stuff that I don't know about. I would say, like, who is Abaddon slash Apollyon? What is up with the river Euphrates? What's up with the thirds? And is there any significance to the idea of a third? And what about the locusts and the horsemen and all the, like, specific images of them? And I could investigate those things further. Um, and if you were going to do that, here's what you would do. 
you might, for example, read some commentaries. You might, there are books called commentaries that people who study the Bible write about the Bible, and you could look through a commentary and look for some thoughts. Um, you could do a word study where you see a word like, you know, like trumpet and search for it throughout the Bible. And thanks to the internet, like, it is really easy for you to do word studies today. Just go to a Bible website and type in the word, and it'll pull, pull them all up. Um, if you want to get really fancy, you can learn how to do them in Hebrew and Greek, because obviously the Bible is a translation. But even in English, that's fine. You could do other things like that. And the bulk of what I do in a sermon that I think leaves people with the, like, I could have never gotten that from the text is really just that, taking the time to do that. Like, here's the commentaries that I use in the book of Revelation as we're preaching through it, right? <laughs> to, you know, to kind of, like, get answers to those questions. And here's the Bible software that I use to do, like, like that's a word study I was doing on, you know, the word for deliver and, you know, and stuff like that. So I'm trying to, like, demystify. I, you, people get this idea that preachers, like, go up on the mountain and commune with God, and then, you know, this, like, you know, down from heaven thing. But this is a process that, while training can help you do it better and faster and more skillfully, is open to anybody, all right? All right, that said, we've investigated the text. If you want to, you took the time to do that. So this morning, we're intentionally not going to do that step, which means that some of the details we will not be able to, you know, to have thoughts on right? Like, I have some thoughts about, like, you know, the imagery of the locusts and the thirds and stuff, but for this morning, we're going to not worry about that. We're going to just assume we did that first, you know, level that we did together of investigating, okay? Then we interpret, which means we ask, what does this mean? Before we talk about the specific questions there, let me just say a word about the idea of context. So everything that anyone says only ultimately has meaning in the context of the other things that they say. Right? That's something that we all understand. Now, sometimes when people say, you're taking me out of context, that's, um, you know, that's just a way of avoiding what they actually said. But there are plenty of times when people get taken out of context. When, um, when you could quote something someone says and make them sound like they mean something completely different. In the Bible, there's three kinds of context that you want to think about. One of them is historical context, which is to say that the Bible was written not in 21st century America. I hope that's not news to any of you, right? But, you know, the book of John was written in the first century to these churches in Asia Minor in a different language, and so you want to think about what the world was like. Secondly, there's what you could call the literary context, which means the context of the book itself, right? So these two chapters, before Revelation 8, there's a chapter that is Revelation 7, right? And after Revelation 9, there's chapter 10, and they find their place in a book as a whole. And so you want to consider what's around it in the book, because that'll help you understand it. And then there is what we could call the biblical context, which is to say that since the Bible is God's word, we also want to think about what it says in the context of the rest of the Bible. And so let's do that with Revelation, okay? First of all, what's its historical context? And just to note, you might be wondering, I mean, with Revelation, you've, we've talked about it, and you maybe have some ideas from our sermon series, but if you're just sitting down with it, you might be wondering, I don't know the answer to that. And that's where I'm going to recommend that you get one of these, which this is a study Bible. This is probably my favorite study Bible, which is the ESV study Bible. But um, study Bibles are Bibles that have notes and cross-references and stuff. And listen, the thing about study Bibles, this is the point where you should read them, not at the beginning, um, like the notes and stuff, okay? Because those notes are some person's thoughts on the text. And it's important first to read the Bible and think about what the Bible says. But at this point, 
if you had a study Bible, you could read the introduction to Revelation, and it'll tell you about what's going on um, in the historical time. But so for Revelation 8 and 9, because I've read a study Bible and a few other things, um, I note that these are letters to the churches in Asia Minor. I note especially that they're persecuted. And also in my notebook, I jotted down the question of whether these visions have anything that maybe is familiar to them in the first century, because sometimes this imagery might, you know, mean something to them that it wouldn't mean to us. Um, then I go on and I say there's the literary context, what's happening in the rest of the book of Revelation. These were my notes. Um, first, that it comes just after the seventh seal, so I th that, so chapters um, six and seven and in the very beginning of eight are about these seven seals. Um, and so uh, it's almost like contained in the seventh, depending on how you read it. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, well, there's seven seals and then there's seven trumpets, so are these about the same thing, or are these about, like, two separate things? Um, you know, again, I'm wondering at this point. And then I make a note, there is all this lightning and earthquake and stuff that is in verse five, which is the verse just before we started reading. And then if you looked ahead at the end of chapter 11, where the seventh trumpet blows, because there's seven and we read the first six, right? You get that exact same, like, lightning and earthquake and stuff. So again, I'm thinking, okay, maybe these are about the same thing, because the ending of each of these sevens is, like, identical. Um, that's just from kind of being aware of it. I jot down that obviously what's happening here is imagery, as I'm studying it, because I had read chapter six. And again, this is sort of assuming that you're going through the book. Does that make sense? Because if you hadn't read Revelation 6, you wouldn't be aware of this. But in Revelation 6, you have another set of natural disasters happening. And so, for example, they include the fact that the sun goes dark and all the stars fall out of the sky and the sky disappears, right? And here in Revelation 8 and 9, a third of the sun goes dark and a third of the stars disappear. And so I'm like, okay, that could mean two things. Either they're about one event, and then, it, and then this is about an event that comes after it, but then it can't be like literal images because there's no stars to fall out of the sky, you know, in Revelation 6, if, you know, in Revelation 8. Or they're about the same event, but they're describing it kind of differently. So whatever's going on, this is imagery. It's symbolic. Um, and then I also jotted down there's a lot of similarities. There will be these seven bowls of judgment later in Revelation between the sixth trumpet and bowl. And now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, I wouldn't be aware of that as I'm reading Revelation 8 and 9. But again, that's where, in the first place, hopefully you, if you were studying this yourself, would have done this with the earlier chapters of Revelation. And then also, another place where this can be helpful is that it will give cross-references oftentimes, where you can say, oh, like, it mentions that this is sort of like this, and so I can look at this cross-reference. And then... Um, one last piece of, of context is biblical context. So how does this fit with the rest of the Bible? Here's what I had jotted in my notebook for that. One, um, it seems like there's some similarity with this in the plagues of Egypt. There's not the same number, right? And, um, and there's some differences too, but like, you know, stuff in the sky going dark and blood, you know, water turning to blood and locusts and all that stuff. I'm like, it feels kind of like the, the plague stories in Egypt. And then I also noted after I kind of was looking at stuff that the locusts, um, are taken right out of Joel 1 and 2, where these locusts are an image of the armies of Babylon invading the land, and all the, like, even a lot of the weird specific stuff with, like, faces and armor and stuff is taken out of Joel 1 and 2. And, um, and the stuff with the angels and the river Euphrates probably is connected with Jeremiah 46. Um, and so I went back and read those right then as I started digging into it. Um, and then I just had jotted down, too, in general, this sounds like a lot of those Old Testament passages of judgment. 
one of the things that I know, because I've spent some time with, you know, with the Old Testament, is that a lot of times people discuss whether those passages are about what they call historical or final eternal judgment, and that they kind of often describe both of them the same way. So there can be moments in history where terrible things happen that are pictured as sort of God's judgment, and that same language can be used to describe God's final judgment. So I'm like, okay, I, again, I haven't drawn all my conclusions yet, but I'm thinking about that. Now just a note, because the first step you were probably thinking, oh, I can do all of that. The second step, some of you are like, oh yeah, I'm seeing that. Some of you might be like, I'm not noticing all those things. And some of you might even be noticing other things that, that I haven't put up on the screen. And that's where I do need to acknowledge that following this method is something that you will get better at over time. Um, but it's not something that you need to, like, go to seminary and learn Greek to be able to do. One of the interesting things as a pastor is that sometimes you'll encounter these, especially older saints who have been really diligent and love the Bible, and they will, like— there's things that I can do that they can't, like, read Hebrew, but there's a lot of things that they just run circles around. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, like, you've, you've got that, and you have this understanding that I don't have. And the reason that they're able to do that is because they've spent decades of their lives basically just doing this, right? And getting better at it and learning more as they've done it. So, again, the emphasis there is that while maybe you can't see all of that today, if you sat down with the text, that is a skill that you would grow in. Um, then let's move, there's two more questions under interpret, and these are really the key questions that help you arrive at what you think the text is saying. The first question is, what are the clearest points the text is trying to make, or the clearest interpretation of what it says? And the reason I'm putting that up there is because you can kind of go afield and look for additional things, but the main thing that a Bible passage says is, like, the clearest main point that it's trying to make. And it's important to name that first and not get sidetracked with all the details, right? And so I just noted a few things. Well, um, judgment is coming on the earth seems to be a point that this text is clearly making. God is sovereign and the one who is ultimately bringing judgment is also a point that this text is making. And you can see how these things are coming from things we noted earlier. Judgment does not itself bring repentance. That's explicitly what the text finishes by saying, is that even though judgment comes, people don't repent. And those sealed are spared the worst of the judgment, although they still experience some of the consequences of judgment coming on the earth. That's my summary of the points. And the thing is, that's actually quite a bit, right? There's a lot there. And I, we have not discussed what Wormwood is or who Abaddon is or any of that, right? <laughs> like, we're already seeing that. And then we can add to that, we say, if that's the clearest point, how would the first readers of Revelation have heard that? What would they have taken from it? And so, one, God's judgment is coming, but they are secure in Jesus because of his salvation. So as they looked at the world around them and experienced these hard things in their world, right, the natural disasters, the unrest and warfare and all of this stuff that they experienced and the persecution, they would have seen that on the one hand, like, judgment is coming on all the world, but that they're secure in Jesus— and then secondly, this would have probably highlighted the consequences of unbelief and compromise. One of the things we talked about in Revelation 2 and 3 is that parts of the early church, as they faced persecution, they were tempted to sort of compromise with the world, right? And to say, okay, we're going to just try to, um, you know, water things down and get along easily with the world. And they would have probably heard this and said, oh, like, the world is passing away. <laughs> we're supposed to recognize the you know, the reality of this world that we're being tempted to compromise with. All right. That's my notebook. 
A couple last notes about interpreting. Um, And again, these are listed in your little handout. Scripture interprets Scripture, one, which means to say that when you're reading the Bible, you should be thinking about other things the Bible says. Um, And in particular, that if one part of Scripture clearly says something, you shouldn't then take an unclear part of the Bible and, you know, and reread that. Two, start with the obvious stuff. That's sort of coming out of what we just said, but focus on the clearest teachings of the text. Um, There's a parable of Jesus about this unfaithful steward who does some really sketchy stuff, and he's sort of held up as a good example, it seems like, in the parable. And people always, like, people will ask me what it means. And when Jesus finishes the parable, he says, use money to make friends in this world so that you can serve Jesus and be, you know, and be received into glory, basically. That's, that's how he sums it up. And I'm like, that's what the parable means. <laughs> you know, like, there's other stuff that's weird, but that's the clear thing. Start with that. Um, third, don't focus on uncertain texts which is to say that there are certain things in the Bible that you read and you're like, man, I don't know what, you know, what's going on there. And it's fine for you to think about it, but don't make those the things that you major on, right? When people are really interested in um, who the sons of heaven that intermarry with the daughters of men in Genesis, you know, are, or what baptism for the dead is in 1 Corinthians when Paul mentions it offhandedly, like, we can talk about those things, but you shouldn't build your theology on those kind of unclear parts. And then last, connect it back to the gospel. While all of the Bible is God's word, the Bible is a story that centers on Jesus. All right. So that is interpreting. And then in just a minute, we're going to talk about applying. But again, because this is the point I'm trying to make by doing this this morning, that is all something that we can do, right? That, that you are able to do as you sit down with a passage of Scripture. Um, that's not sort of secret, hidden knowledge that only a few people have access to. That said, then we should always take the Bible and apply it to our lives. And this is where I'm going to shift into a little bit more of preacher voice. I hope that's okay, and actually, like, try to bring these things home. But when I think about applying, there's usually four questions we ask, and you'll see them, again, there in the handout. The first question is, how should this piece of scripture change how I view God? What should I learn about God from this? And in the case of this text, it would just be that God is the sovereign judge. He's sovereign, meaning he rules over the world, and is a judge who will ultimately bring judgment for evil. And we've talked about the idea of God's judgment and justice in the last few chapters of Revelation, so we're not going to walk through all of that here. But the fundamental point is this. The point is that sin is destructive, and we are in denial about the destruction that sin brings. That's why you have these visions in Revelation. One of the interesting things in Scripture is that God's judgment is pictured both as the, like, normal consequences for sin and the consequences that God in his justice brings in his final judgment. Sin is destructive and we are often in denial about its destructiveness. We can feel like we've gotten away with it. Uh, all of us can, right? <laughs> that, that, you know, that the things we've done must not be particularly bad because God has not, you know, seemed to respond yet. And what Revelation emphasizes in these judgment visions is that we're getting it wrong. That, um, that we tend to view the world as if getting away with it is normal, and that, you know, justice coming is sort of abnormal. And then when justice comes for someone's evil, we kind of feel uncomfortable with it. But what Revelation argues is that those moments when someone reaps a terrible reward for the evil that they've done, those moments when justice really comes into the world, those are the moments where we're getting a glimpse of how the world really works. And what everything else represents is God's gracious patience. 
graciously shows enormous patience and draws millions of people to salvation and repentance, but that that patience does not mean that there will never be justice. That's a hard thing. And like I said, that's something we've talked about a few times in the last few chapters of Revelation, so you can go back and listen to those sermons if you want to wrestle with it more. So let's keep going. The second question I thought was really interesting from these chapters. So how should this text change how I treat others? It's the second thing we should ask. And the thing that struck me about this is that even though this passage insists that God is bringing judgment, it also makes completely clear that judgment does not bring repentance. That God's judgment does not bring anybody to repent of their sin. On one level, that speaks to us of our sinfulness, and it's something that we all recognize, I think, which is that we love sin and can fail to repent of it and return to it even when it has terrible consequences for us, right? Like, we, I mean, you see that in its most extreme forms and like someone wrestling with addiction, right, it, while it's destroying their life. But even in little ways, like, it, have you ever had that moment where, like, you want to gossip about someone in a hurtful way and you recognize that it will hurt them and you recognize that it will make people think less of you for saying it, and you recognize that, like, it's the, you know, that it's the wrong thing to do, and in some sense you don't want to do it, right? But you still somehow do it and don't turn aside from it because, um, because you have this desire for sin, and even recognizing its destructive consequences doesn't turn you from it. So that's part of it. But this also means that we as Christians need to think really carefully about how we call people to turn from their sin. So here's what's interesting about this text to me in that regard, is that it has this very seemingly almost kind of hellfire and brimstone picture of God's judgment, but then it explicitly says that that is not a thing that will turn people from their sin. And one of the great mistakes that Christians make, and that some preachers make, is that they think that God's judgment is the way that they're going to get people to change and turn from their sin. And so they try to use guilt and shame and fear and threats of God's judgment to get people to become moral people. And what's striking about this text is it's one of several places where the Bible explicitly says that that doesn't work, that that doesn't change people. The gospel changes people. The good news of Jesus' salvation changes people. But just going off about God's judgment doesn't. All right. Third, third application. We ask, how should this text change how I view the world and how I value things and make decisions? This one is especially important in application because it recognizes that Christian obedience isn't just about what I do, but how and why I do things. It's very easy for me, if I only focus on the outward actions, to disguise issues in my heart. And in this text, I think what Jesus is trying to show us particularly is that the end of sin is death. The place where sin is headed is death and destruction. And our problem is that we don't see that that's where sin leads. We believe that it, you know, leads us somewhere else, and so we end up pursuing sin, even though it leads to our destruction. Which is to say that sin is like Tide Pods. This is the best way I know to describe this, all right? Um, do you remember a couple of years ago when there was all this craziness about kids and teenagers eating Tide Pods? Yes? Um, and to be clear, any teenagers in here or whatever, do not eat Tide Pods. <laughs> but, but here's the thing about Tide Pods. When you actually look at them, you understand why kids were tempted to try to eat them, because they kind of look delicious, right? <laughs> like, like looking at them, um, they kind of look like this candy, this shiny, colorful, 
candy, and you could sit there and think, oh yeah, I totally want to bite into that thing. The way to persuade yourself not to, rather than thinking about how sort of delicious that actually looks up on the screen, is by thinking about what will actually happen to you, right, if you eat one, by instead picturing, you know, the vomiting and the terrible, like, damage that's being done to your esophagus and st stomach and, you know, these people dying and in the hospital because of the poisoning that they got from eating it. If you picture those realities, the destructive ends of eating it, then it's not going to look appetizing anymore, right? <laughs> then you're going to have no desire to bite into this thing. And in Scripture, sin is often pictured as like that. When we look at it, we kind of think, oh, that looks delicious, and we would like to bite into it. And one of the main purposes of passages like this one are they're using this elevated kind of terrifying language, picturing the destruction of God's judgment in order for us to say, when we think about sin, this is the sort of result that we're supposed to be picturing. This is where sin actually leads us. And by feeling that, it's going to take away some of the appeal of sin to us. Sin, in truth, makes us deeply unhappy. It might look pleasurable in the moment, but in the end it leads to death. And so one of the ways we fight it is by recognizing the destruction that it brings. And one last application how does this text help me believe the gospel? Like we said, every text of scripture is supposed to ultimately lead us to Jesus and the salvation he brings. The answer as I thought about this text is that it communicates to these people that they are secure in Jesus. It would emphasize to these first readers and to us that we are secure in Jesus Christ even as the world faces the destruction of judgment. Part of what Revelation is trying to communicate to us is that this world is a mess. It is broken in profound and fundamental ways, and that is because of humanity's sin and rebellion against God. And what the gospel provides is a way for us to not lie about the brokenness of the world, but nonetheless to have hope in Jesus. That we don't have to pretend like the world isn't that bad. We don't have to pretend like terrible things aren't going to happen in life. We don't have to pretend like the world isn't broken by sin. We can acknowledge the destructive effects of sin, but have hope, because our hope is not in our ability to kind of fix the world, and it's not even in our ability to kind of fix ourselves and not sin. Our hope is in Jesus, who seals us in the face of sin. It's why I think even though some of these judgments fall on all of humanity, there is this moment where we see those sealed in Jesus Christ being spared the particular torments of some of them. And the reason because in is that because in Jesus, we are being given another way. We can be honest about the destructive effects of sin, but we can also be hopeful that we have salvation in Jesus Christ to deliver us from it. That's actually the last piece of the reality about God's judgment. We've talked about it in a couple of different ways as we've worked through these visions, and we're kind of, I mean, there'll be one more later, but I mean, we're kind of at the end of the big, like, overarching visions of judgment that happen in Revelation. Um, but, but we've said a couple of things about how justice is actually good, and we should long for it, and about how God is working to restore the world, and his judgment and justice are a result of that. We've touched on a couple of these different themes, but this is actually, in many ways, trying to remind us of the final theme, what we've just said about being secure in Jesus. And that is that part of the answer to God's judgment in Scripture is just that it is escapable in Jesus Christ. The God who judges the world provides a way out from under that judgment. And in Jesus, we can find.
Now that's Revelation 8 and 9. And in some ways we could just leave it there as an amen. But I want to go back to what we've been doing throughout this. And try to just say, I hope in addition to seeing the specific ways that that text speaks to our lives, we appreciate that reality that that is something that all of us as Christians, as we sit down with God's word, can do. That God speaks to us and invites us to take up his word and to learn from it and to apply it to our lives and to follow it, and that you are able to do that. And so if I can leave you with an encouragement from that level of the sermon, um, take that inductive Bible study handout that I gave you guys, think, you know, think through it, and then maybe just sit down, maybe not with Revelation 8 and 9 to start, but sit down with some text of Scripture and just try to work through that process with it. Because the beauty of that is the more you do that, the more you start to recognize that the power of God's Word is something that is available for each of us to learn from and apply to our lives. Not something that you just need me to give you when, when you come here on Sunday. Let's pray together. God and Father, I thank you that your Word is powerful and active. I thank you that you are powerfully working in the world. Knowledge proper sense of reverence, the justice that you are bringing to the earth, and the fact that I and all of us ought to have it fall on our heads, but rejoice in the fact that in Jesus Christ you have secured us and are working our salvation. Pray now that you would be with us as we go from this place. Make us people who delight in your word. Pray this in the name of Jesus.